Uh, this is the last installment, if you will, of this particular series, and uh, I'm just grateful to be part of a church that's kind of allowed us to take this journey, um, because uh, to discuss holiness in a church context is often uh, kind of poo-pooed, or like people aren't into that idea, and it's because of this. For years, I think the church has sort of thrown out the message of holiness because people don't have people that have it made it more about what you do and don't do. What I'm trying to say is this. I grew up in a church where good folks, wonderful folks, but holiness was all about basically this. As a kid, this is what I interpreted. If it was fun, you shouldn't do it. That's sin. And so that's kind of how how I interpreted what holiness was. And so that's kind of, I was like, I don't want anything to do with that, but I felt like I should. And so uh, here's the thing. I don't think holiness is first about behavior. I think holiness is first about heart. And so if we can get the heart right, then we'll let the behavior figure itself out. And so if it's about motives before it's ever about action, and so the confusion over how I relate to God has basically served as the reason behind the two questions I've offered throughout this series. And the two questions I've offered are are this, uh, do you have a relationship with God? And if so, what does that look like? Because that's the real, that's the real center of this message that is so important. It's not like, do you, do you, do you know God or do you believe in God? That's one part of the question. But to really get to understanding each other, it's what's that relationship with God look like? As you relate to God, what does that look like? So for me, Christianity didn't make a whole lot of sense, just to be quite honest with you, until I understood and began to understand what biblical holiness was all about. So last week in our second helpings, um, which is something we're doing on Sunday nights, tonight's the last night at 6.30, uh, Dr. Black used this metaphor of an escalator. He said, have you ever tried to go up a down escalator? And all the normal people said, no. And then we're like, no, no, actually, we've all tried that, you know, and we've seen our children try it. And, 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 and of course, you know, that whole feeling that we're, we, we work doubly hard and we don't get anywhere. That's how some of us relate to God. We work doubly hard and we don't get anywhere. We feel like we're working harder and we, we, we kind of feel like we're trying to keep ourselves pure and do the right thing, but we're not getting anywhere. And I think that's how many people, even in this room, would describe our relationship with God. We work harder, but we don't seem to get anywhere. And I, I've lived that kind of faith. And here's what I can tell you. It's not freeing at all. In fact, it's kind of binding. We, we feel like we're carrying life and all its burdens all by ourselves, And instead of being sort of free to lay them down to a God we love, we carry them because it's a God we serve, not a God we love. You follow? And people live like this. People walk with God like this. And we think this God is a good God, and we just got to serve him, and we got to serve him the best way possible, and he really doesn't have a whole lot of time for us, but we're just going to serve him for our entire lives. And then when we're going up the down escalator in our faith, we come to this place where we are tired of being good because it's too doggone hard. It takes too much effort. You know, I'm not, I'm not naturally good. You know, my dog is naturally good. I am not naturally good. I don't know because it, it's too much work. And so everything becomes a battle between the good and the bad. And we get one area sort of cared for it and all prettied up and ready for church. And then we screw up in another area. And we think, man, I can't do this thing called Christianity. And then when you live that kind of faith, the up to down escalator idea, God, God comes across as this insatiable deity when it comes to how good I can be. And we get this idea, I'll never be good enough. I can't be good enough for this God. 
And so holiness puts us in the right direction, if you will, on the escalator. Holiness for me allows this whole thing to begin to make sense. Holiness makes life and makes God following and makes God's work and God's word lighter. I'm no longer swimming against the God current of my life. Now I'm actually working with God in me. That's what scriptural holiness is. And only after holiness begins to take root in us will the words you've heard Jesus say make sense. These words have never made sense to you if you've been going up the down escalator. Here's what Jesus said in in his words. So when your scripture, this is in red. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, which is... Well, everybody, <laughs> and, and I will give you, what's the word? How rested do you think the modern church is? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. Okay, that's fine, Jesus, that's you, that makes sense. And you will find rest for your souls. Get this one. For my yoke is The heck you say? And my burden is light? Are you kidding me? Not the Jesus I followed. Not the one when I was trying to go up the down escalator. There wasn't anything easy or light about it. But only when we begin to understand and value scriptural holiness will this actually be our story. Will this actually make sense? This is a life that's headed in the right direction on the escalator. And so the intimidating verses that we started our series with are no longer intimidating because now we understand that God is calling us to be what he desires for us to be. But he isn't asking us to make ourselves these things. What he's asking for is for us to give him permission when he said in the Old Testament, be holy because I'm holy. Or when Jesus said in the New Testament, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. That will never make sense out of the understanding of scriptural holiness. That will never be a possibility in my life or yours. So at this point in the message, I was supposed to to begin to speak about living your convictions. That was the topic of the morning. But as I was writing this week, I couldn't do it. I mean, I had a good one. I'll give it to you later, but I'm not going to give it to you now. but, But I couldn't do it. It didn't seem right. And the reason I couldn't get peace about it is this. I wanted to make sure everybody had a crystal clear understanding about what holiness is. And so what I want to do is I want to go all the way back to the very beginning, and I've got a real corny illustration that I used at the very beginning, but you people seem to appreciate it the first time, so I'm going to try to do it again, and just to make sure we all have clarity on what we're speaking about here, and that's what I'm going to do for the rest of our time. And then at the end of our message today, I'm basically going to share with you when my heart changed on this whole topic. And if it will help you in your journey, great. If it doesn't, then just enjoy the song and, and we'll move forward. So if this is all about, if holiness is all about the perfection, holiness that I can muster in my own strength, I'm toast. And so are you people, respectfully. We're not going to be able to make ourselves holy. We can't make ourselves not stink spiritually. We can't do it. It's not possible That's a life that's headed up in the down escalator. I will never be perfect and left to my own ability. Being holy is never on the table for me if it's only about what I can do. When we think perfect, we think without without flaws. But Jesus was actually using perfect in the sense of, let me complete you. Let me mature you. Let me grow you into who I've created you to be. 
He is saying the creator, get this, can actually make the creation complete. Not the other way around. The creator can actually make the creation complete. And what a relief it was to discover. Being perfect in this life is not about performance, but it's about our affections. It's about our love. Dr. Black also gave this illustration last week, last night, uh, last Sunday night, um, about a guy who would stand up in church every week, and he would stand up in church and he'd say, you know, they do testimonies. I don't know if you grew up in a church like this or not, but sometimes people would stand up and give a testimony, and that was kind of like sharing what God's been doing in their heart. And so this one dude would stand up in church, and he'd always say, you know, God's cleaning out some cobwebs in my life. Week after week, God's cleaning out the cobwebs of my life. God's cleaning out the cobwebs of my life. Finally, people in church got tired of hearing it every week, so somebody said, why don't we just ask God to kill the spider? (laughs) That's holiness. God kills the spider. He changes the very core of who we are. He changes our allegiances and our affections and our alliance, and all of a sudden, we become different people. It's the process by which God changes our affections and who we are, and we become, ready, more like him. And we start to desire the things of God. We start to have passions for the things of God. Our heart breaks for the same things that break the heart of God, and we long to be in God's presence and to be overwhelmed by God's glory and to revel in his spirit, and we long for him to make us holy and to complete us. That's holiness. And holiness is about loving God and being loved by God and then maturing or growing into that love and then learning to love each other with that kind of love. Are you tracking with me so far? That's what holiness is. God becomes the shaper of who we are. He continues to perfect and to mature and to complete our relationship with him as long as we're willing, as long as we surrender ourselves to him because God will not kick the door down on anybody's life. He won't force you into this. The process of being made holy is what Scripture calls sanctification. Uh, Don't get too caught up on the word. It's what the Bible calls sanctification. So what theologians have done is people have actually made some descriptions trying to define what God's actions are. So it's the creation trying to describe what the creator is doing. So we're going to do a little bit of that. But basically, sanctification is how God makes us holy, makes us complete, matures us in this kind of love, in this kind of relationship with him. So early on in the series, I offered this metaphor. It starts like this. We're at a point in our lives where God will invite us to dance. Now, here's what I mean by that. Maybe you're in a church service. Maybe you're in a small group. Maybe you're kneeling by a bed with your grandmother. And somewhere along the way, you start to say, you know what? I've got a pile of shame and a pile of regret and a pile of wrong I've done in my life. I've got things, relationships I've caused hurt or I've been hurt by, things I wish I never have done. And you come to the point where you say, God, I need to be forgiven. Forgiven. Well, that's God inviting you to dance. What he's saying is, will you allow me to be your savior? Will you allow me? He won't force himself on you. You have to make the decision. And so he says, let me, let me be your dance partner in this life. And so we accept his invitation, and this is called salvation, for the smart people, the kind of toned down people like myself, I call it, do you want to dance? You know, and so that's kind of what this is. And this is where I think the Holy Spirit begins to live and act and, and work inside of us. That's salvation. And theologians would say this is what they call initial 
sanctification. Again, humans trying to describe what God's doing. This is where the Holy Spirit takes up residence, and he becomes a player in our decision-making, but primarily in helping us deal with the spiritual condition we find ourselves in. This is where God forgives our sin. He promises to remove shame and guilt, and our standing before God is made right. Many of you in the room, this would describe your relationship with God. It's like we're in this courtroom and God is the judge. We've been found guilty in the courtroom. And then God says, I'm going to declare you innocent because of what I've done for you. Follow? That's where many of us would say we relate to God. But make no mistake, we're not flawless in that moment. We're we're not perfect. But we're forgiven. And again, that was probably what many of you would say your relationship with God was like. But after being forgiven, even after, for me, it was at an altar. I went to an altar and gave my heart to Jesus and all that. And even after I got it from that altar, I found myself still battling things that I used to do. I still battled with things that I shouldn't be battling with. I still had thoughts that I, that I shouldn't have had. Does that make sense? I was still kind of wrestling with my old Tom and new Tom, if you'll allow me to use that language. Please tell me you understand what I'm talking about, right? And so we're all like, man, this thing must have broke. Maybe it didn't work in me. I got to go back to the altar again, you know, and try this again. Lord, I know something didn't take. And so we asked God to do it again. But really, that's not what's happening. The first question is, do you want to dance? The second question is this, who's going to lead the dance? Who's going to lead it? And so if this is what they call initial sanctification, theologians would say this is the progressive sanctification. And it's this battle where you go back and forth trying to figure out who's going to to be in charge of your life. You or me, God is saying. Who's going to be the one that helps make the decision? Because at first you're stepping all over each other's feet trying to learn to live with each other. They're competing affections in your life, and they create more and more cobwebs in our lives. And this is where we have asked God to forgive us, but we're not sure we want him to lead. I would make the distinction this way, if it fits you great. Do you want to dance is a Savior question. Who's going to lead is the Lord question. You see? And many of us have a Savior, but we've never really settled the Lord question. Do you want God to be the Lord in your life, or would you rather stay in that spot? Just as a side note, I would always rather stay in that spot. (laughs) And respectfully, probably you too. And so for me to give that up is a big deal. And as long as we stay in this spot, the Lord's spot, we're going to continue to go up the down escalator. And this is why many of you may be frustrated in your walk with God. This period of one's spiritual journey is almost this wrestling match of sorts. God wants to lead, but Tom wants to control. God wants to lead Tom's desires, but to be honest with you, so do I. God wants to lead my activities, but so do I. God wants to lead my relationships and how I love, but so do I. And so this period is this period of wins and losses, of rises and falls, of victories in the agony of defeat. I think it's something about what Paul was writing to the Corinthians when he said this. He says, run in such a way as to get the prize. Everybody who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, he says, I don't run like a person running aimlessly. I don't fight like a person beating the air. He says, no, I beat my body. I make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Listen, Paul's not talking about salvation here. 
He's talking to me and you. He's talking to those of us who call ourselves believers. He's talking about staying in the race. He's talking about staying in the dance, to use our metaphor. He's encouraging us to learn to live in such a way, a disciplined and devout way that is honoring to the God we serve. He's imploring us to turn over a life to a Lord and avoid the disapproval and discipline of a holy God. He's saying, let God have all of you and do whatever it takes to get there. Paul was concerned that some would enter this stage of faith and then get discouraged and walk away. And that's true, isn't it? That's true. Because many of us came to this point in our walk with God and it became too difficult or we didn't buy it. And so we stepped back because we wanted to lead. And Paul is saying, don't bail. Don't quit here. Because you're going to miss what it would be like to go the right direction on the escalator. (laughs) And it's possible to do that. It is actually possible to turn from our sin and turn into the arms of a loving Heavenly Father. One of the things John Wesley contributed to the theological discussions of his day was he helped refine and define what sin was. More specific, the sin that we could address. Yes, sin is all those things we talked about in this series. Sin is, the scripture calls it, lawlessness and disobedience and breaking a covenant and missing the mark, falling short of God's glory. And Wesley said, all these things are true, but perhaps we need to look at sin as this. What if sin is actually to intentionally hurt God with our decision-making? So he said this. He said, what if sin is a willful transgression or a choice to wrong? Follow? He said, what would that be like if that's what sin was? If that's the sin that we should pay attention to? Because he believed, according to Scripture, we could live in such a way that our choices consistently honor God. He was saying that at some point we could get into our walk with God where our choices consistently honor God. This is what Wesley meant. If you've ever heard that Wesley teaches this whole idea of sinless perfection, he wasn't saying we never fall short of God's glory. He was saying this. He's saying we can live in such a way, not that we would be flawless, but he was saying with our wills we could be fully devoted with the choices we make. Theologians would call this one entire sanctification. For our metaphor, it would be this. God, you lead the dance. So if this is the initial salvation, and this is the lordship idea. This is choosing to live the rest of your life with him leading the dance. You, you lead, hands off. Finally, we decide to allow God to lead the dance because he's gained our trust. And our dependence and our affections now all center on him and what he desires to do with us in this one and only life. And he becomes our identity the hub of our existence, no competing affections in our lives anymore. And we consistently honor God with our choices. You say, Tom, that sounds impossible. And at first glance, I think I'd probably agree with you. But the Bible seems to think it is possible. What do we do with this verse if it's not? No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who lives in Jesus keeps on sinning. Well, that obviously can't mean falling short of God's glory because we've all do that, fair? No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. 
Now, just for real clarity, the definition of sin here, these two words are the ones from archery. These are the missing the mark. So what they're saying is nobody lives in him, keeps on missing the mark every time. And Wesley brought some understanding to this. Now we've got to figure out what that means. Wesley said we could live in such a way that our choices, ready, consistently hit the mark of our relationship with God. And you say that's impossible. And I would say difficult, but probably not impossible because of something Paul said. He says, not that I've already attained all this or been made perfect, complete. I'm pressing on to take hold of that, which for Christ Jesus took hold, of, took hold of me. I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what's behind, straining toward what's ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. You and I are accustomed to relationships where we consistently choose for the people we love. Let me put it to you this way. Um, I can tell you this week, every choice that I have made, every choice I have made, I honored Lisa. I can tell you this. I got three kids, Rachel, Sarah, Thomas. I can tell you every choice I made this week, I made to honor them. Let me put it another way. I didn't make one choice to dishonor Rachel, Sarah, and Thomas. Am I okay with that? Let me even go further. I can tell you every decision I made this week, I consistently honored the incredible staff that I get the honor to work with. Every choice. Every one. Now, did I hit it perfect? Did I, was I flawless this week? Of course, I'm a pastor. Where, I mean, how else do you think we... Not even close. <laughs> Come on. Not even close. Don't put me on that pedestal. I can't stay up there. Not even close. Did I kind of tick Lisa off by forgetting to pick something out in the bedroom? That's none of your business, but maybe. <laughs> Did I send a text to one of the kids that could have been misunderstood in some other kind of way by mistake? Yeah, could have. But I can tell you this with my choices. I consistently honor. In fact, in my deepest friendships I have, I consistently choose to honor those folks. Consistently. Consistently. Well, what if that's true in how we're to relate to God? Because if I can do it for some of you people, and I can do it for these three beautiful children, I can do it for the staff I work with, I can do it for this beautiful woman that God gave me to do life with, then certainly I could possibly do it for the creator of grace and mercy. Consistently choose him. Let me, let me say it another way. I think I grew up with an understanding that holiness was a place that we arrive at. It's almost what, what some of you in your disciplines might call a bounded set. So holiness is for people that recycle, people that don't drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls that do. Um, <laughs> holiness is for people that have the same political opinions. Holiness is for people that dress a certain way, have a fish on the car, drive a hybrid. Holiness is for people that worship a certain way. Some of you, holiness is hybrid. Heck, give me a truck. You know, all that. That's holiness. I get it. I get it. But my point is this. We all have this bounded set of what we think it means. And so what ends up happening is if you're, you're either in or you're out. But here's what I've learned. If you stay around holiness teaching like this for too long, 
The list is too freaking long. Nobody can get in. And those that are in, are you ready? You're faking it. And we all know it. You're acting like you don't stink and you do stink. I mean, we get it. You're, we're, we're, nobody can do that. And then if you find a, like three people on the planet who can actually make all the list, they're the grumpiest people you know. You don't want anything to do with those people. Isn't it true? Wow, that's the closest thing to a unified amen I've ever received in this room. If you meet the requirements, you're in. You belong. The problem, and frankly what's been the turnoff for many of us, is the ability to fit in is near impossible. It's kind of repulsive. If you want to fit in, you've got to fake it. And I'm tired of plastic. I'm tired of something that's not genuine. I would suggest holiness is an abounded set. What if holiness is actually a centered set? Let me tell you what I mean by that. Put on your imagination glasses, <laughs> and let's pretend that table is Jesus. Fair? Who's the table? Jesus. There we go. So a centered set would say this. Centered set would say it's not about whether or not you're in or out of something. It has everything to do with the direction you're, you're going. So what that means is holiness could be this. Holiness could be a person, camera's going this way, holiness could be a person who has been way out here on Friday night and you did something that you probably shouldn't have done and you know it and you're sitting there all guilted and shamed up right now. Holiness says it's a centered set, but there's Jesus and you're headed that direction. God is making you holy. You see? Holiness is about People being right here, been in church their whole lives, they got the fish on the car the whole nine yards, and then they make some decisions, repeated decisions, and all of a sudden, they've been next to Jesus, and they start walking away. Do you see? Holiness is all about what you're centering your life on, not how close you are to him. Does that make sense? So some of you may be over here saying, hey, do you want to dance? And you say, oh, man, God, do I want to dance? God's making you holy. He's completing you. He's perfecting you. Some of you may be here, I've been wrestling my whole life, Lord, you saved me when I was six, and here my whole life, I'm trying to do the right thing, I'm just tired. So Lord, you lead everything. Ah, see, centered. Now you're headed that direction. You're centered on something new for your life. So at any point, we all may be facing Jesus, moving toward him, and he begins to perfect us and to make us holy make us entirely sanctified. And that's what Jesus meant. It's the only thing that makes sense of what Jesus meant when he said, be complete, be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is where we ask Jesus to change the sinful nature of who we are. Reorient our entire lives. We've been living our entire lives centered on us. And for the first time we say, I want to live a life centered on something else besides me. I want to live a life centered on you. That's holiness. That's what it means. Will this ever be finalized, Tom? Will we ever, like, even our patterns of thought, like, even at this point, you still find yourself giving a one-finger blessing by mistake, you know, and you're like, oh, I shouldn't have done that, you know? You know, all these things. Does this mean it will never... Does it ever go beyond all? Did we ever get free? Yes, but it's not on this earth. It's in heaven. In heaven is where we're finally made whole, complete. That's what they would say, you know, 
we both are good dancers in heaven. <laughs> you know, that's how the metaphor would say. Right now, God invites you to dance. Who's going to lead? Why don't you lead it? And then one day in heaven, everybody can dance. And I'm really excited because I can't dance at all because I was raised in a Christian home. But some of y'all can really dance. I don't know where you learned it, but you're really good at it. <laughs> in heaven, I'm going to be right there with you. Y'all going to be so tired of seeing me dance. I'm sorry for what I just did, but I mean, you're going to be so tired of that. Just... Hey, let me ask you. Do you have a relationship with God? If so, what's it look like? What does it look like for God to ask uh, to sanctify us, to move us through the, through the dance? Because he won't kick the doors down on us. He won't go where he's not invited. Well, to be honest, there is no cookie-cutter approach because we're all unique but I just thought I would tell you at least what my experience was because I think sometimes we guys, men and women that do this, can kind of miscommunicate about this. We can think that we've got to see a burning bush or get swallowed by a whale or something freaky. And um, so I'm just going to share with you what my experience was like and actually going to use some of the team to kind of bring you into that experience here. See, I grew up in a great Christian home. I got a great Christian heritage. I'm very thankful. Um, but I grew up thinking that God was more like an employer and my job was to be the employee of the month. That's kind of what I felt. And so I, I had to work my butt off to try to make God notice, to try to notice that, God, this is, I'm going to work so hard for you. I, and so I would offer myself to him over and over and over again. If I do a good enough job, then maybe God would give me a raise. That's kind of how I related to God. And I worked hard for God for years as an as an the best employee of the month, hoping that one day I'd get like my own parking place, you know, like in God's kingdom, you know, the employee of the month, there's Tom's spot. But there was a side of me that had that concept and understanding of God that was very frustrated because I was going up a down escalator. And my desire to be the best employee of God's was countered by my, by my nature, by my own behavior. I would say I was stuck in this progressive stage about who's going to lead the dance for a couple years in my life. And my walk with God was this thrill of victory and the agony of defeat thing. And I would try and I would try and I would try and then I'd go out on a Friday night and do something I shouldn't have done and come back Sunday morning and go, oh man, Lord, I'm so sorry. Please don't fire me. Yeah, I lived in that, you know, constantly afraid God's going to fire me. And then in my early 20s, just a couple of years ago, I, um, I uh, was in a worship service that changed my life. And it wasn't so much that the worship service had all the impact on it as much as my heart was tired. <laughs> I was tired. I, this was after my call to ministry. I mean, I was, I was, I was like, this whole thing's a joke, or unless all these other people got it, and I've missed it. <laughs> and so I was talking to God about that. I was disheartened by my repeated failures. And to be honest, I was tired of working my rear end off, hoping God would give me a reward. It just seemed like a miserable way to live. So I was seeking God throughout that service. And then we sang this closing hymn. 
Now, some of you have only gone to these kinds of services, but there used to be these things called hymns, and these hymns were put in something called a hymn book. <laughs> you know, that's kind of what happened. In fact, my first time my kids saw a hymn book, they opened it up, and they said, oh, Daddy, there's the word Fanny in the hymn book. You know, they saw, because Fanny J. Crosby. But anyway, that'd be funnier if you all knew what a hymn was. But anyway, that's okay. So I went to the team after much abuse, and I said, would you all be willing to sing a hymn for us? And with much joy, they said, oh, yes, absolutely, we'll be willing to. But I asked them to sing this hymn because I want you to hear the words that changed my life. It's the song's called uh, Spirit of God, uh, Descend Upon My Heart, I think, something like that. But here's, here's, the, here's the verse that got me. Teach me to love you as your angels love. And when I heard those words, I thought, I don't know anything about loving you. I work for you. I don't love you. One holy passion filling all my frame. And at that point, I understood I didn't have one holy passion. I had two. What I wanted to do and my desire to please God. And they were not on the same page. The fullness of the heaven-descended dove. Oh, if this is going to happen, it's going to be you that does it in me. And then this is the line. Rest of my life. My heart and altar and your love the flame. Listen for your relationship with God as Heather sings. Spirit of God descend upon my heart. We You know, when that happens, everything changes. 
everything changes. Because for the first time in our lives, we're doing what we were created to do and being who we were created to be. God is making us holy. God is completing us. And everybody in the room was made with that call. He made you to be holy. He made you to have a life centered on something else beside yourself. Do you have a relationship with God? If so, what does that look like? Jesus, thank you for these good folks. Thank you for the high honor of sharing with them this morning. And Lord, my prayer all week has been that this would provide some clarity to some folks. They say, oh man, this is what I've been looking for. I'll never fit into that bounded set. But I think I could center a life on Jesus Christ. I'll never work myself into favor of that grand employer. But a God that will fill my heart with love. That I could get behind. So I pray that you would speak to my friends, my brothers and sisters. Speak to all of us and you would call us to a deeper level of committing to you. You'd help us to know what our relationship with you actually looks like. And then we would live. We would live. We would dance. We would celebrate in the freedom of a people who have found the dance partner we were all designed to dance with. Our hearts an altar and your love the flame. In your name, amen.